Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, how do you solve a problem like translation? Now, in most of the world, outside of Mormon studies, the word translation really is not a problem at all. In fact, translation means pretty much what it has always meant. It means translating the words from one language into another. Whether it's English into Spanish or Japanese into English, the idea is to convey the meaning in one text in one language into another text in another language. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. That's what translation means. And in fact, that is what the word translation has meant in Mormonism, at least for the first 150 years or so of its history. But recently in Mormon studies, the word translation has undergone a revolution in its meaning. No longer does translation mean simply translating from one language into another. It actually means anything and everything other than the simple, traditional, straightforward meaning of the word. And the reason for this revolution is simple. The reason is that it is becoming more and more clear as scholarship and research on Mormonism advances, even within the realm of faithful LDS scholarship, that Joseph Smith's translation projects appear to be anything other than simply translating from one language into another, whether it is the Book of Abraham or the Book of Mormon or even the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. The evidence is accumulating and growing to the size of a mountain at this point that Joseph Smith was drawing upon the ideas and writings of others and inserting those ideas and writings of others into his translation projects. The idea that translation needs a new definition within the field of Mormon studies is illustrated no better than the fact that there was a conference held, a scholarly conference held, of faithful LDS scholars at the University of Utah back in April of 2017. Here is a brief synopsis of that conference found at the Faith Matters website. The name of the conference was New Perspectives on Joseph Smith and Translation. Well, why do we need new perspectives? The answer is because the old perspective simply will not do. Translation can no longer mean simply translating from one language into another. Therefore, LDS scholars must come up with a new definition of translation that fits the facts. Here is a one-paragraph synopsis of this conference. A capacity crowd at Utah State University shared the historic opportunity of hearing six esteemed Mormon scholars explore the topic of Joseph Smith and translation. Here, translation is put in quotes. Translation. Richard Bushman, Terrell Givens, Samuel Brown, and Jared Hickman were on stage together, led in conversation by Jana Reese and Rosalind Welch in the six-session conference. There were six sessions devoted to this subject. That's how complicated it is becoming. Philip Barlow of USU Religious Studies Program hosted the conference and joined in the conversation. The result was an explosion in the understanding of translation, once again in quotation marks, an explosion in the understanding of translation as it relates to Joseph Smith's prophetic project as translator and seer. And if you want to see the videos from each of the six presentations at that conference, they are available on the Faith Matters website. For our purposes, however, it is enough to note that a scholarly conference was deemed necessary in order to redefine 
the word translate as it applies to Joseph Smith's translation projects. Now translation used to be an easy thing. As I say, for at least 150 years, Joseph Smith's translation projects were taught as being simply Joseph Smith doing what he claimed to be doing, translating from one language to another, whether it be the Reformed Egyptian on the gold plates of the Book of Mormon or the Egyptian on the papyri that Joseph Smith claimed to translate into the Book of Abraham. Translation used to mean in Mormonism what translation means everywhere outside of Mormonism. It is what the LDS were taught when I joined the church in 1978 happened, that Joseph was actually translating from one language to another. It is what Joseph claimed to be doing. It is what his followers understood him to be doing. It is what the LDS church taught he was doing for over 150 years, and is still by and large, by the way, the church itself as opposed to the scholars, the church is still by and large teaching the same thing today that Joseph Smith merely translated from one language to another. But as I say, there is this sea change going on among Mormon scholars that in order to account for the evidence that Joseph Smith was not translating from one language to another, a new definition of the term translation is required. And we will see that it is a much more loosey-goosey definition of translation than the one we were brought up as Mormons believing. As I say, things have been changing in this regard in the last few decades. In translation project after translation project, it is becoming more and more incontrovertible that Joseph Smith was not translating in the normally understood definition of translation, but was actually borrowing heavily from other sources in his society. We start with the book of Abraham because this is ground zero on Joseph Smith's translation projects. And the reason it's ground zero is that it is the translation project for which we have the actual records from which Joseph Smith translated the text, i.e. the papyri fragments, as well as the facsimiles themselves. We know now that Joseph Smith's Book of Abraham has nothing to do with the papyrus from which Joseph Smith claimed to have translated the Book of Abraham, at least not in the conventional sense of the word translation, which again is what Joseph claims to have been doing, what he apparently believed he was doing, and what his followers understood him to be doing. But now that we know that his translations do not match in any degree either the glyphs on the papyri or the facsimiles on the papyri, we know that he was not translating from one language to another as he claimed to be doing. Instead, he came up with a text in the book of Abraham that has no relationship whatsoever to anything on the papyri. And therefore, it is demonstrable that what Joseph Smith was doing, whatever it was he was doing, it was not a translation in the conventional sense. Now, therefore, because we know that what he was doing was not a translation in the conventional sense, and what he was doing is not what he appears to have claimed to have been doing, we can do one of two things. The first thing we can do is say, well, he was a fraud, he was a shyster, he was making stuff up and claiming it was coming from a papyri, and now the study of ancient Egyptian writing has advanced to the point where we can prove it. Or, if we want to remain faithful to the church and be intellectually engaged with the issues relating to Joseph Smith and his translation, the second option is to come up with a different definition of the word translation which accounts for this evidence. And this is the whole reason why there was this study group, this conference that was held in April of 2017. And we will see it going on all over the place in different forms, in different venues, in different books, in different papers relating to not just the Book of Abraham, but all of Joseph Smith's translation projects. We'll get to that here in a minute. Because once we understand this about the Book of Abraham, we immediately are led to Joseph Smith's other major translation project, which was the Book of Mormon. 
Our understanding of the Book of Abraham translation process immediately impacts our understanding of the Book of Mormon translation process. Here we are learning that Joseph did not even translate off the plates themselves, but instead used a seer stone that he placed in a top hat and dictated what he saw manifested to him when he put his face over the top of the hat. The plates were not used at all, but were often nearby, wrapped in a napkin, according to some witnesses. If the translation process of the book of Abraham is something other than a conventional translation, how does that impact our understanding of the Book of Mormon translation? And does this somehow answer a number of problems associated with the Book of Mormon text itself, i.e. the presence of vast swaths of passages from the King James Version in the text of the Book of Mormon, a detailed knowledge of Christ before the Christian era in the Book of Mormon, the presence of theology and religious practices contemporary to Joseph Smith and reflecting a mix of Methodism and camp revival meetings. These also are found in the Book of Mormon, not to mention the numerous anachronisms that belong quite well in Joseph Smith's day, but are out of place in the ancient American setting in which the Book of Mormon places them. So what I am saying here is that with the Book of Abraham, we have the text, or at least portions of the text, from which Joseph Smith claimed to translate the Book of Abraham. There is no relationship between the two. In the case of the Book of Mormon, we do not have the original text, and yet there are a multitude of problems with the Book of Mormon that indicate it is the product of early 19th century America and that other sources, both cultural and textual, were used by Joseph Smith in order to produce the Book of Mormon. So even though we don't have the plates themselves, we can see there's a lot of problems in the Book of Mormon that point toward the need for a much broader definition of the word translation than what has been historically taught in the LDS Church. And these issues relating to the translation of the Book of Abraham and the translation of the Book of Mormon continue to dog us into other translation projects that do not fall so neatly into the category of translating a document written in one language to another. Here, the classic example is Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. There, he was not translating or even purporting to translate from one text to another. Instead, he was taking a Bible and then making inspired corrections and additions and deletions to that Bible. He was not claiming to translate from one language into another, but still, it was referred to by Joseph Smith as a translation. Once again, the same problems continue to dog us into this translation project of Joseph Smith. And here I'm talking about the recent scholarship still yet to be published by Professor Thomas Wayman of BYU and Haley Wilson, his research assistant, that demonstrate 200 to 300 examples of Joseph Smith using the Adam Clark Bible commentary, which we know he had and used, and inserted those 200 to 300 examples into his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. In other words, Joseph has this very famous Bible commentary by an extremely erudite scholar named Adam Clark, in which he goes through the entire Bible, Old and New Testaments, and makes commentary on all the different verses. It has now been shown by BYU scholars, no less, that 200 to 300 examples from Adam Clark's Bible commentary show up in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. It is clear beyond a reasonable doubt that Joseph Smith used the Adam Clark Bible commentary and took ideas and insights and research from that noted scholar, Adam Clark, and incorporated those into his Joseph Smith translation. So what are we to do with that? Well, once again, we obviously know that we need a new definition of the word translation. Joseph Smith, once more, is clearly taking ideas 
that are common in his society or borrowing the ideas of others that are current in his society and inserting those into his translation projects, just like he did with the Book of Abraham, just like he did with the Book of Mormon, so also he did with the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And this sort of thing applies not only to the textual edits that comprise the majority of the Joseph Smith translation, it also applies to those larger sections which can be found in the Book of Moses comprising primarily chapter 1 and also chapters 6 through 7, chapter 1 being the prologue to the Book of Moses, chapter 6 and 7 being a lengthy insert of pure additional material into the book of Moses, which comprises a great deal of material regarding Enoch. The point I'm making here is that Adam Clark's Bible commentary and Joseph Smith's use of it shows up in the textual edits throughout the majority of the Joseph Smith translation. It also applies to those larger sections which can be found in the book of Moses comprising primarily chapter 1, the introduction, and chapter 6 through 7, which are the materials relating to Enoch. Those are new additions, lengthy additions, the most lengthy additions to the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Joseph Smith's 200 to 300 examples of using the Adam Clark's Bible commentary apply to the editing work he did throughout the majority of his translation. But even in these sections, chapters 1 and 6 through 7, Terrell Givens sets forth many sources on which Joseph Smith potentially or actually relied in coming up with his distinctive doctrines reflected in these chapters of the Joseph Smith translation, such as premortality, the plurality of populated worlds, and even his understanding of apostasy and restoration. All of this goes to the heart of what is meant by translation. It is becoming undeniable at this point that Joseph Smith's translation was not from one language to another. It was also not simply God giving him direction and understanding from above, as Mormons have been taught and understood for over 150 years, and as most Mormons continue to believe today. But to the scholars amongst Mormonism, it is becoming clear to the point of undeniability that that is not what was happening. Instead, Joseph Smith was relying heavily upon ideas in his society, learned commentaries in his society, the ideas of others and the writings of others in his society and that were contemporary to him and that he then used those ideas and incorporated them into his inspired translations and even incorporated them into what he said were revelations coming directly from God. An astute listener to this podcast named Joshua Nelson made an interesting find that sometime within the past year, the LDS Church on its official website has now acknowledged and to some degree incorporated the research of Thomas Wayman and Haley Wilson in their church history topics dealing with the Joseph Smith translation. Here's what is now in the Joseph Smith translation topic on the church website. Quote, as he worked on these changes, he appears in many instances to have consulted respected commentaries by biblical scholars, studying them out in his mind as a part of the revelatory process. End of quote. There is a footnote for this sentence, and it links to the Haley Wilson and Thomas Wayman article. And as Joshua Nelson observes, the church silently inserted it into this paper on its website and is acknowledging what those two uncovered in their research. One other thing I want to mention here is that a friend of mine named Paul Osborne recently made the discovery that even the apparently distinctive phrases used by Joseph Smith of one eternal round and one eternal now as they apply to God were not original to Joseph Smith, but in fact were commonplaces 
in his day and time. And it looks like he borrowed those phrases as well from other sources and then incorporated them into his teachings and his revelations. Nice work, Joshua Nelson and Paul Osborne. If I see further than others, it is because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Terrell Givens, in his recent book, The Pearl of Greatest Price, spends a number of pages talking about the philosophical concept called bricolage. That's B-R-I-C-O-L-A-G-E. Because it seems evident that Joseph Smith was taking his own ideas or ideas borrowed from others and cobbling them together in his translation projects, Terrell Givens takes a fancy word called bricolage and says this is what Joseph Smith was doing. And indeed, if we look up the definition of bricolage in the Wikipedia, we find that that is a good descriptor. In the arts, bricolage is the construction or creation of a work from a diverse range of things that happen to be available. In other words, it's picking and choosing from ideas and things that are available to you in your community and then cobbling them together to make something new. Interestingly, Wikipedia says that bricolage comes from French for DIY or do-it-yourself projects. This is what Terrell Givens says Joseph Smith was engaged in. So according to Terrell Givens, because Joseph Smith engaged in the practice of bricolage, he then becomes a bricolure, B-R-I-C-O-L-E-U-R, or one who engages in bricolage. Now this may sound like a lot of highfalutin talk to make what Joseph Smith was doing sound more extraordinary than what it actually was, and if that's what you're thinking, you'll probably find little argument for me. There is sometimes a tendency among scholars to take ordinary things that we are all acquainted with, slap a fancy name on it, and then act as if it's something much more complicated and much harder to understand than what it actually is. This reminds me of a class on sociology that I took back when I was in college at the University of Texas at Austin. I had to take a basic introductory sociology class as one of the requirements for my degree. And I remember one day, a couple of sociologists come visiting to the class and explain to the class the project that they were working on and the paper that they were writing. And what they were talking about was the process of a guy going into a bar and then picking up or hitting on a girl. Now, this is something that even as a Mormon, I could pretty well understand the basic concepts behind it. And I think they used this example because they thought that the members of the class would find it of interest. But the sociologists came in and they took something that everybody already knew and understood. They broke it down into its component parts. They slapped new names on it. And then they stood back and marveled at it as if they had actually identified something nobody had ever thought of before or ever seen before. When it was actually something everybody already knew. All you had to do was to hang a fancy name on it in order to, number one, pretend that it was something more complicated than it actually was, and number two, get a paper published. But when we're talking about bricolage and Joseph Smith manifestly cobbling together ideas that were in his society and putting those in his revelations, putting those in his translations, putting those in his inspirations, and claiming all of these were from God when actually he was taking them from other sources, how do you incorporate inspiration and revelation into this process. This sounds like something that could be done with zero inspiration at all. Why do you need revelation from God if all you are doing is cobbling together an assortment of ideas already available in your environment? Well, from a faithful perspective, you are starting to run out of options here. Having given up on the idea that Joseph Smith is receiving direct revelation from God and conceding the obvious fact that he is taking ideas 
and texts from his own environment and calling them translation from God, pretty much the only idea that is left from a faithful perspective is that God is, in some sense, directing Joseph Smith's assemblage of his currently existing ideas, that the ideas and texts Joseph uses are somehow divinely signified to him, while the ones he does not use, the ideas he doesn't use, do not get the same type of signification. And indeed, scholars and apologists alike have suggested that perhaps the idea of studying it out in your own mind and the spirit witnessing which is right and which is wrong comes into play here. It's sort of like God playing that old hide-and-seek game that I used to play when I was a kid, where the idea was I would hide an object in a room, and then somebody else would walk around the room, and as they got further away from the hidden object, I would say colder, and as they got closer, I'd say warmer, and when they were really close, I'd say red hot, and that's how you found the hidden object. That was the whole point of the game. I imagine you probably played that too when you were a kid. But isn't this really kind of what they're saying? that God played with Joseph Smith, that is, he's rummaging through these ancient texts and reading them and reading the commentaries and reading writings of other people on religious subjects, that God is sort of playing that game with him, saying, oh, you're getting colder, no, you're getting warmer, oh, you're red hot, let's use that idea in some kind of translation. Now, this sort of approach to Joseph Smith's translation projects is not completely new. It goes back to the 1940s or 1950s, as far as I can tell, with Sidney B. Sperry, a professor at the Brigham Young University. And perhaps not surprisingly, it had to do with the Book of Mormon's use of the King James Version. It is clear to everyone that the Book of Mormon relies heavily on the King James Version of the Bible, and Sidney B. Sperry sought to try and find a resolution to that problem without completely denying the evidence that was right in front of his face. And so he proposed the idea that Joseph Smith must have used the King James Bible during his translation of the Book of Mormon, that when Joseph found a passage that he's translating that he recognized as being from the Bible, he reached over, grabbed his Bible, opened it up to the passage in question, and began dictating from the Bible. But there are places in the Bible quotations where it varies somewhat from the King James Version. And so Sidney B. Sperry accounted for that by saying that the places where the Book of Mormon is different from the King James Version are those places where Joseph Smith was inspired in some way to understand that the modern Bible text he was using did not reflect the original. It is now thought possible by some to bracket the problem of the intertextuality or dependence on other ideas and texts such as the King James Version that show up in the Book of Mormon and instead engage in an analysis of what Joseph did with these ideas and texts, or in other words, what the Book of Mormon does with these ideas and texts. For example, if we bracket the fact that Joseph Smith was using the King James Version in his Book of Mormon translation, we can then look at what he did with it instead of doing our level-headed best to ignore the fact that he is borrowing from the King James Version and the impact that has on our testimony and understanding of his translation process. One of the LDS scholars leading the charge in this regard is Nick Frederick, who appeared on the podcast LDS Perspectives last August. August of 2018. The intertextuality between the Book of Mormon and the Bible is a field in which he has a great deal of interest, but he finds that even bringing it up 
with other Mormons is a difficult and challenging endeavor. During the interview, Laura Hales asks him this question. When you wrote your article for the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, who were trying to start a conversation, you wanted to establish a methodology for identifying and classifying phrases from the New Testament that are present within the Book of Mormon text. Why did you think this was necessary? Now, Nick Frederick answers, and his answer is revealing regarding the acceptance of most Mormons to this type of analysis. In other words, to this type of recognition that the Book of Mormon quotes and depends upon the King James Version of the Bible in many places. Here's his answer. Part of it was frustration. I studied classics here at BYU. My being and Aaron classics, in particular New Testament Greek. As I studied the Book of Mormon and the DNC and I saw the influence of the New Testament, I realized I couldn't really have conversations with people about it because on one hand, if I talked to believing Mormons, they would just say, well, do you still have a testimony of the Book of Mormon? Are you trying to undermine historicity? Are you suggesting that Joseph Smith plagiarized it? And that's where the conversation would stop. Or one of the responses I would get from people would be, well, the New Testament is just the leftover Old Testament stuff. The New Testament also just recycled the Old Testament. So if there is New Testament, the Book of Mormon is really just Old Testament anyway. It became this kind of thing that we had to build a barrier around. So he's saying that no Mormons, no Mormon scholars, really wanted to deal seriously with the issue that the Book of Mormon quotes and depends upon the New Testament in many places. No other Mormons want to deal with it. He has to go to the anti-Mormons, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, who are the only people who want to deal with this issue. And of course, they want to deal with it as evidence against the Book of Mormon's historicity. So that is a wonderful interview. And I encourage you to go to Latter-day Saint Perspectives podcast and listen to it. Again, it is titled Intertextuality in the Book of Mormon with Nick Frederick. It is episode 92 from August of 2018. Now, I myself have made a few forays into this sort of thing as well, showing how Joseph Smith uses the Bible in Jesus' messages to the Nephites when he made his personal appearance there shortly after his resurrection as recorded in 3rd Nephi. And yet it must be acknowledged that this is a far cry from what most Mormons believe Joseph was engaged in. If Joseph is receiving revelation directly from God, if he is translating by the gift and power of God, why does he need to consult other works, including the Bible, in order to do his translation, in order to receive his revelation? Which reminds me of the famous line from one of the later Star Trek movies, What does God need? with a starship. And if you haven't seen that movie, Captain Kirk and company travel to the center of the universe and they encounter a being who is God. They find God. God appears to them. He's big. He's mighty. He kind of looks like the all-powerful Oz. And God is telling them that he wants them to let him use their starship in order to travel out into the universe and spread his message of peace and love. And everybody else is just in awe and they're all bowing down and worshiping and saying, oh, you're wonderful. Yeah, we'll absolutely do this. This is fantastic. Whatever you say, God. It is Captain Kirk, who is the only one who's standing back and raises his hand tentatively and asks the question, what does God need with a starship? Then I shall make use of this starship. It will be your chariot. Excuse me. It will carry my power to every corner of creation. Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said, what does God need with a starship? What does God need 
with a starship? It's the same kind of question I ask about this. What does God need with a Bible during the translation of the Book of Mormon? What does God need with the Adam Clark Bible commentary when Joseph Smith is doing his translation of the Bible? And now today, some scholars, such as Terrell Givens, are rushing forward. They're identifying all these different sources that Joseph Smith drew upon in order to do his translations and his revelations. And they're saying how wonderful and amazing it is and calling it bricolage. And Radio Free Mormon is the one standing back and apart from the group and raising his hand tentatively and asking, what does God need with bricolage? Now, taking all of the same evidence, it's the same evidence that I went over in my last podcast, the amazingly subversive Terrell Givens, all this evidence that he has given us, all this evidence that Thomas Wayman and Haley Wilson have given us, all this evidence that Sidney B. Sperry has given us, and many other scholars to boot. Taking all this evidence that Joseph Smith is gathering and incorporating and using ideas in his own society and incorporating them into his revelationary projects and his translation projects, as I say, taking the same evidence, I'm going to propose a different understanding of Joseph Smith's method of translation. If they had invited Radio Free Mormon, to make a presentation at this conference they had on the subject of translation back at the University of Utah in April of 2017, this is what I would have proposed. And here is my opening statement for my presentation at the conference. Anybody paying attention to Mormon studies knows that there is a large degree of correspondence between writings and ideas in Joseph Smith's Melu and revelations he claimed from God. The debate then generally centers on whether Joseph Smith was consciously casting these concepts as revelation or whether he was being genuinely inspired in some way with similar ideas. In other words, whether he was an intentional fraud or whether he actually believed he was inspired with similar ideas to what were available in his environment. I believe I may have found an important piece of evidence on this subject. It is the 1832 First Vision account. As you recall, in the 1832 First Vision account, Joseph Smith claims to have come to the conclusion prior to going to the grove to pray that all sects had apostatized from true Christianity, that he came to this conclusion through naturalistic means being his own study of the Bible. And in fact, that's so important, I want to read to you that passage in Joseph Smith's own handwriting from the 1832 account of the first vision. Here's what he writes in the second paragraph. Thus, from the age of 12 years to 15, I pondered many things in my heart concerning the situation of the world of mankind, the contentions and divisions, the wickedness and abominations, and the darkness which pervaded the minds of mankind. My mind became exceedingly distressed, for I became convicted of my sins, and by searching the scriptures, now here's the part, listen closely, and by searching the scriptures, I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but that they had apostatized from the true and living faith. And there was no society or denomination that was built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. So in the 1832 account, Joseph Smith learns by his study of the scriptures, i.e. the Bible, that all sects and denominations had fallen away, had apostatized, from the true church of Jesus Christ, from the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. That is key to this discussion. 
Joseph Smith knows this by a completely naturalistic process of his own study of the scriptures that mankind had apostatized from the true and living faith and there was no society or denomination that was built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. Now this is recorded in 1832 regarding an event he says happened in 1820, although he doesn't give the year in this 1832 account. Six years later, in the 1838 account, the one that becomes the official version of the church, we now find a different telling of this story. In the 1838 account, Joseph Smith does not learn before going to the grove that all churches are in a state of apostasy. In fact, that is exactly what it is that he goes to find out which church he should join. And God tells him, join none of them for they are all wrong. It is God now, technically Jesus, it is God who tells Joseph Smith in response to his prayer that all the churches are in a state of apostasy. And Joseph Smith underscores this. If we look in the Joseph Smith history in the Pearl of Great Price, which is the 1838 version, he says in verse 18, my object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself. This is after the pillar of light comes down and he sees the two personages and the one points to the other and says, this is my beloved son, hear him. He says, no sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak. Then I asked the personages who stood above me in the light, which of all the sects was right. And then he says this, for at this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong and which I should join. In verse 19, it says, I was answered that I must join none of them. Why? For they were all wrong. So Joseph Smith is making it clear in the 1838 account that it is only from God that he learns that all the churches are wrong and that this idea had never entered into his heart before God told him that they were all wrong. Now, in prior episodes, I've talked about this as a contradiction between the 1832 account and the 1838 account, and it is indeed a contradiction. But recently, I recognized that it is much more than just a contradiction between accounts. It is perhaps more importantly, an actual example of Joseph Smith taking an idea that was originally his and then subsequently recasting it as a revelation from God going so far as to put the words into God's own mouth, literally, while at the same time denying that it was Joseph Smith's idea to begin with. Now, if we have one clear-cut example, which we appear to have here, if we have one clear-cut example of Joseph Smith instantiating his own idea as revelation from God, on what basis should we believe he acted any differently in any other case, especially those in which there is a correspondence with contemporary literature or ideas. If I can take this a bit further, I think this may give us a solid understanding of what is meant by translation within an LDS context. As I've mentioned before, it has lately become the vogue among some apologists and scholars to interpret the word translation as anything and everything other than the straightforward meaning of the word, i.e. to translate words from one language into another. This word translation has been complicated to the point where it means everything and nothing. Clearly, Joseph Smith appears to have used the word translation as it is commonly understood, and clearly his followers understood the word in the same manner. But now that it is becoming more and more clear that Joseph Smith's translations were not a translation from one language into another, it has become necessary to redefine the word to fit the facts. Additionally, translation has come to mean a variety of things. Most notably, it is one thing when Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Mormon, and another thing entirely when Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Abraham. 
The former, i.e. the Book of Mormon, being an almost exclusively pure revelatory process. He hammers that thing out in around 60 to 70 days, and he does it by means of direct revelation from God. He doesn't even use the plates. He uses his seer stone. This is the knowledge coming beamed down into his mind in some method directly from God. But the book of Abraham being the result more of an attempted scholarly endeavor with the Egyptian papers and apparently working hard and long to try and figure out what each of these glyphs on the papyrus actually meant. And so it takes him a great deal longer time in order to translate the book of Abraham than it did to translate the Book of Mormon. And so scholars frequently look at these and say, well, Joseph Smith is doing very different kinds of ideas of translation between the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham. And they'll throw in the Joseph Smith translation as well, because that's something completely different. That is not even purportedly being a translation from one language into another. It's something that is a category of its own. What I'm proposing here is a different understanding of the word translation, one that appears to comport with the facts and remains consistent throughout regardless of the context and regardless of the apparatus used to bring the translation about. It applies whether it's to the Book of Mormon translation, it applies whether it's to the Book of Abraham translation, it applies whether it's to the Joseph Smith translation, and it also applies to the revelations received in the Doctrine and Covenants. What I propose, consistent with the 1832 First Vision account linchpin that I've mentioned above, is that translation should be understood as Joseph Smith taking his own ideas or the ideas he has adopted from others and instantiating those ideas in sacred texts and history. Let me repeat that again because it worked real hard to phrase that exactly the way I wanted it. Translation should be understood as Joseph Smith taking his own ideas or the ideas he has adopted from others and instantiating those ideas in sacred texts and history. We have seen that Joseph Smith takes his own idea expressed in the 1832 First Vision account that all Christian sects were in a state of apostasy, and then six years later in the 1838 account, he places this same idea in God's mouth while disclaiming it as ever having entered into his heart before God spoke it to him. Using this definition of translation, we can see that when Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, he did the same kind of thing taking the common ideas and stories of his day and instantiating them in the form of a history written by ancient American inhabitants. This accounts for why it is the theology in the Book of Mormon sounds a lot like the Methodist theology of Joseph Smith's day, as well as explaining the army of anachronisms that populate the text of the Book of Mormon. When Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Mormon, he is taking his own ideas or the ideas he has adopted from others and instantiating those ideas in sacred texts and history. Let's go to the Book of Abraham and see how that definition applies there. When Joseph Smith translated the Book of Abraham, he did the same thing, taking his own ideas or those adopted from others and instantiating them in a first-person history of Abraham. In this regard, I note that Joseph Smith received his important revelation on priesthood, section 107, in early 1835, that later the same year he buys the mummies and papyrus, and that before the year is out, he has translated the first chapter or so of Abraham, which is very concerned with what? Proper priesthood authority. The ideas that are in Joseph Smith's mind or in God's mind in the revelations he's receiving from God end up being what's on Abraham's mind thousands of years ago, but in a text that Joseph Smith is translating 
shortly thereafter. When Joseph Smith receives revelation unconnected with any ancient text, such as those contained in the Doctrine and Covenants, he is doing the same thing. He is translating these revelations by putting his own ideas in the mouth of God to be spoken back to him, as well as to other church members. We would not typically think of applying the word translation to such revelations, but if we continue to use my definition of translation as instantiating Joseph's ideas in sacred texts and histories, the definition appears to carry through. And now, perhaps most interestingly, when Joseph Smith is describing not ancient history in ancient texts, but his own history of his own personal experiences with deity. Joseph Smith appears to be translating those as well. Here we come full circle to the linchpin example that we began with. Joseph Smith's description of the first vision in which he manifestly puts his own ideas about no church being true in the 1832 account into the mouth of God in the 1838 account. Once we can see by this example how it is, Joseph Smith is translating even his own experiences it should perhaps be no surprise that Joseph Smith starts out with one being appearing to him in his 1832 account and graduates to two beings appearing to him in subsequent accounts. We are all aware of Joseph Smith's evolving conceptions of deity and the Godhead from the Book of Mormon, which was published in 1830. And in the Book of Mormon, it reflects a concept of the Godhead commonly known as modalism, i.e. one God exists who appears in different modes or different manifestations, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but there's really only one God. Then that moves and evolves to the Lectures on Faith, which was published in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, where it is put forth that there are two persons in the Godhead, not one person, as in the Book of Mormon, but two persons. And then Doctrine and Covenants section 130, which is given in 1843, which plainly declares that there are not two persons in the Godhead, but there are actually three persons in the Godhead. So we go from the Book of Mormon in 1830, teaching one God, to the Lectures on Faith in 1835, teaching two persons in the Godhead, to the Doctrine and Covenants section 130 in 1843, teaching three persons in the Godhead. It is clear that Joseph Smith's concept of God is evolving over this period of time. Now, it is one thing for Joseph Smith's conceptions of God to be evolving and for those evolving concepts to be recorded in Joseph Smith's teachings or even in his revelations received from God. We understand it's line upon line, precept on precept. Maybe God is just leading him along and teaching him information as he is prepared to receive it. That argument is certainly there and has certainly been made by apologists. But it seems another thing entirely for Joseph Smith's evolving conceptions of God to be reflected in an evolving narrative of a putative personal historical event that Joseph claims to have received in 1820. We would tend to think that ideas may change, but events remain the same. No matter how Joseph's ideas of God grew subsequently, whatever he experienced in 1820 is what he experienced in 1820, and the narrative should remain constant, or at least reasonably so. But it does not appear to do so. Instead, Joseph's evolving ideas about God appear to alter later iterations of his first vision story. Why? Because he is translating his own personal history as well. Not only does Joseph translate his personal history to literally put words in God's mouth, he also appears to translate his history to add characters to earlier events, such as adding Peter, James, and John to section 27 in the Doctrine and Covenants in 1835, 
when they were not mentioned at all in the same revelation as it was recorded and published in the Book of Commandments two years earlier. It appears to many scholars, including Richard Bushman, that Joseph Smith added the appearance of Peter, James, and John to his personal historical record, i.e. things that he actually experienced. He added them sometime in 1834 or 35, and then backdated the story to 1829. And indeed, this may be an instance of Joseph translating his personal history not only to add characters or to add language or words to a character, but to add entire events in which the newly added characters figure. Now, at a minimum, I think this understanding of the word translation as Joseph Smith taking his own ideas or the ideas he has adopted from somebody else and instantiating those ideas in sacred texts and history has the benefit of not only comporting with the evidence, but also allowing us to use the same understanding of translation as a valid explanation for all of Joseph Smith's revelatory projects. Taking this idea a bit further, if we understand that Joseph Smith was willing to put those words into the mouth of God, the words that he himself had understood prior to going to the grove in his 1832 account, and put those words into the mouth of God in the 1838 account, then we have to ask a few more questions. The first is, if Joseph Smith is willing to put these words into the mouth of God as he recounts his first vision in 1838, what other words might he have put into the mouth of God? Are these the only words that he put into the mouth of God, or are there others? Did he put all of the words into the mouth of God? And once you get to that point, you have to start wondering whether it is that he was willing to simply create this historical event, this story of the first vision, out of whole cloth. If he will make one part of the story out of whole cloth, where does that end? And further, this impacts Joseph Smith's accounts of other events. What other ideas of his might find themselves incorporated into other historical events that he says he personally witnessed? The possibilities abound. Did he add the appearance of the father to the appearance of the son in subsequent First Vision accounts, as he appears to have done? Did he add Peter, James, and John appearing to his priesthood restoration account in section 27, as he appears to have done? Did he add words from Moroni in subsequent recitations of that experience? And what I mean by this is that there are a number of accounts of Moroni appearing to Joseph Smith and leading him to where the golden plates were hidden. But it is not until the 1838 account that Moroni tells Joseph Smith that his name will be had for good and evil among all men and among all nations. Well, this would have been a remarkable thing for Moroni to say if he had indeed said it or if Joseph Smith had claimed he said it way back in 1823. But it is not until 1838 that Joseph Smith remembers Moroni saying this particular phrase. Why is that significant? Well, because the year before, in 1837, Joseph Smith had commissioned the apostles to go to England to preach the gospel, which met with rousing success. And also, of course, with the rousing success in England, there were a lot of people who were anti-Mormon, who did not agree with the message of Mormonism, who were in opposition to the LDS Church being established in England. And it is only after this has happened, not only in America, but also in England, that Joseph Smith remembers Moroni having said to him that his name would be had for good and evil among all nations. Is this another instance of Joseph Smith taking his own ideas or actually historical events that had already happened now and putting them into the mouth of an angel this time? Is what Joseph Smith is doing here with the words of Moroni similar to what he did 
with the words that he put into the mouth of God about none of the churches being true? Is he now in 1838 putting into the mouth of Moroni that his name would be had for good and evil among all nations, something that does not show up in earlier accounts because it had not actually transpired yet that his name was being had for good and evil, at least among two nations by that point. So the 1832 account of the first vision may be the key not only to understanding how it is that Joseph Smith operated, it may be the smoking gun to prove that Joseph Smith did precisely this sort of thing in one incontrovertible instance. And as I say, this opens wide the door to the possibility that Joseph Smith did the same thing in other instances where the proof is not so ironclad. Now, taking my theory and my definition of translation and comparing it with Terrell Givens' definition of translation, his bricolage theory, they both sound extremely similar. In Terrell Givens' bricolage theory, Joseph Smith, as the consummate bricolure, took ideas and concepts that were available to him in his community and cobbled them together in order to create something new, i.e. Mormonism, and that he instantiated those ideas in his revelatory texts and translations. My definition of translation is that it should be understood as Joseph Smith taking his own ideas or the ideas he has adopted from others and instantiating those ideas in sacred texts and history. They are virtually the same, Terrell Givens' theory, his bricolage theory, and my theory and definition of translation. The fact that these two theories are indistinguishable from each other should cause every Mormon some concern. Now, Terrell Givens must believe that somehow God was operative in what ideas and doctrines Joseph Smith collected and then put together in his bricolage. But the conclusion is inescapable that both my theory as well as Terrell Givens' theory are indistinguishable from an intentional fraud. Now, from Terrell Givens' point of view, what Joseph Smith came up with was incredibly beautiful, incredibly doctrinally deep, incredibly powerful. But a beautiful, powerful fraud is still a fraud. That is the brick wall that Terrell Givens is rushing toward at breakneck speed. Or should I say, the bricolage wall that Terrell Givens is rushing at at breakneck speed. Well, I suppose one man's brick is another man's bricolage. Is it bricolage or is it camouflage? Is it bricolage or is it triage? I'll let you decide. And it seems that Terrell Givens is somewhat aware of the fact that this bricolage theory of his is not standing alone, completely satisfactory, that it does have problems and that the problems are those that I have identified in that theory, that it is indistinguishable from a fraud. And therefore, in the same book, at a different place, Terrell Givens floats another theory, and this theory is called the Urtext theory. Now that's Urtext, U-R text theory, and Urtext is a foundational text from which other writings are drawn. And what Terrell Givens proposes is that there is a spiritual Urtext that contains all the truth of things as they really are, things as they really exist, things as they really have been, and that Joseph Smith was somehow able to pick and choose and access by revelation different bits and pieces from this Ur text and incorporate them in his revelations. He doesn't translate the entire Ur text because that would put all the pieces together at once. It would be beautiful, but Joseph Smith doesn't do that. Instead, he takes bits and pieces out of this Ur text. He never gets the whole thing, but he takes bits and pieces, and those are what are instantiated in his revelations. The problem with this Ur text theory is, first off, that it contradicts the bricolage theory 
that he has proposed elsewhere. If Joseph Smith, by revelation, is accessing bits and pieces of this divine urtext, what does he need with the writings of others from which he gathers different ideas and incorporates them in his revelations? Once again, what does God need with a starship? If we were to try and harmonize these two theories that Terrell Givens puts forward, the bricolage theory and the urtext theory, then perhaps he would say that what God is doing is inspiring Joseph Smith to look through the writings of others and then when he hits upon different ideas and concepts that are in the writings of others that match this divine ur text that is when he takes those writings and incorporates them into his revelations but really this is starting to seem needlessly complicated at this point the other problem with terrell given's ur text theory is that if joseph smith is by revelation accessing this divine ur text which has all the truth in it things as they really are this contradicts what Joseph Smith actually did in his prophetic career. What he did is not accessing divine pieces of an word text, which are all true and which all correspond beautifully to each other. Instead, what he did is his understanding of doctrine and of God evolved over time. Once again, the classic example is being the one God, the modalist theory of God, manifest in the Book of Mormon in 1830, two gods, in 1835 in the Lectures on Faith, which then graduates to three gods by the time of 1843. If Joseph Smith is accessing an Ur text which has the divine truth of things as they really are, which of these different models that Joseph Smith is putting forward relating to the Godhead is the correct one? Which one is derived from this Ur text? They cannot all be because they contradict each other. And that is just one example. So that's the problem I see with the Ur text theory standing alone. I've already shown you that the problem with the bricolage theory is that it's indistinguishable from a fraud on Joseph Smith's part. The problem with this Urtex theory is that it doesn't match the evidence that we have historically that shows Joseph Smith evolving over time in his beliefs related to a number of different things. And I did an entire podcast on this subject called The Amazing Contradicting Joseph Smith, in which I go over a number of those examples. Joseph Smith is not deriving his ideas from some sort of ur-text. He is evolving his ideas over time, even when his subsequent ideas contradict his former ideas. And in The Amazing Contradicting Joseph Smith, I set that forward as a positive. That's a positive thing, I argue there. But while I may argue that it's a positive thing, it is definitely not something that can be harmonized with the idea of a divine ur-text from which he is drawing. Terrell Givens appears to want to believe that the doctrines and teachings of Joseph Smith that he gave coming from this divine ur-text all mesh together beautifully. It's a huge mansion. It's a perfect mansion. It's beautifully furnished throughout. But really, if you look at what Joseph Smith taught and his revelations and his translations, it's not a beautiful mansion. Instead, it more resembles the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California. The rooms do not necessarily correspond to each other. You've got flights of stairs going up directly into a ceiling. Many of his teachings not only do not harmonize with each other, they contradict each other and they do not make sense. It was left to later Mormons to take these disparate ideas that were spun out by Joseph Smith and try and harmonize them and make them fit together. Brigham Young took a whack at this and he came up with the Adam-God theory. Well, the Adam-God theory had its day and it was very controversial even during Brigham Young's lifetime. But after Brigham Young died, it was slowly and quietly retired, and instead, what the church ended up doing was adopting Elder James Talmage's harmonization of Joseph Smith's teachings as reflected in his books, Jesus the Christ 
and the Articles of Faith. Now, in order to harmonize Joseph Smith's teachings, regardless of whether you're Brigham Young or whether you are James Talmadge, you have to do a lot of work. You have to do a lot of editing. You have to do a lot of ignoring of some things that Joseph Smith said in favor of other things that he said. And the reason you have to do that is because there's a lot of contradiction that goes on. To give you one minor example, Joseph Smith is on record at one point saying to a mother who had lost her child that she would have the privilege in the resurrection of raising that child up to full adulthood. But in another place, i.e. the King Follett discourse, Joseph Smith is on record as saying that when children die and are resurrected, they do not grow up to maturity in the resurrection. They do not grow up to adulthood. Instead, they maintain that form and that age at which they died for all eternity. And that's why he talks about there being infants on thrones throughout all eternity in the resurrection. And that's just a small example of contradictions. Now, which one are you going to choose? What the church has done today is they have gone with the former idea and they have neglected the latter idea. And as part of that getting away from the latter idea about infants on thrones, they have also edited officially published versions of Joseph Smith's King Follett discourse to get rid of that offending passage. No longer does he talk about infants on thrones. We'll just cut that out in order to make one single coherent and consistent system of belief and theology, and then pretend that it is that one consistent and coherent system of theology that Joseph Smith actually taught. But if you're going to deal with everything that Joseph Smith said in his teachings, in his sermons, in his revelations, in his translations, then you have to employ by necessity a Procrustean bed where the parts that hang over are cut off and the parts that are too short are stretched to fit. And it makes no difference whether you're Brigham Young coming up with the Adam God theory or James Talmadge coming up in the early 20th century what is largely considered to be the orthodox doctrine of the church today. Now I think that while Terrell Given's Urtext theory is probably incorrect and demonstrably incorrect, I think he is definitely onto something with his bricolage theory, which does match the evidence and which also happens to match my definition of translation as used by Joseph Smith. In this formulation, Joseph Smith thought that his own ideas or ideas that appealed to him from others were God's ideas. And the mere fact that Joseph Smith came up with these ideas or adopted these ideas from others must mean that they came from God. In other words, there is no line of demarcation between what Joseph Smith thought and what Joseph considered to be revelation from God. If they are Joseph's ideas, then they must be God's ideas. Now, this is similar, interestingly, to what happens in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Helaman, chapter 10, where Nephi there, not the original Nephi, but a much more subsequent Nephi, where Nephi there gets his calling and election made sure. You may remember that passage. It's from Helaman, chapter 10, verse 5. And there, Nephi is assured that, quote, All things will be done unto thee according to thy word, for thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. So there, Nephi is given the promise that anything he asks will be according to the will of God. Anything he wants will be according to the will of God. Now, this is generally understood by faithful Latter-day Saints as being a blessing from God upon a faithful servant, i.e. Nephi, that the faithful servant has proven by past performance that the servant will ask for nothing that is out of harmony with the will of God. But this particular coin, like all coins, is two-sided. There is another side, and the other side is a bit darker. It also means that whatever the servant asks or wants is by definition the will of God, and what God would want for that servant or for the church over which that servant presides. Is your wife having a problem with guys in the school of the prophets spitting their tobacco all over the floor? 
Okay, then that is what God has a problem with too. No tobacco. Are you getting a hankering for women other than your wife? Okay, then that is what God wants for you too. You see, if A equals B, then B must equal A. It is the same thing just stated in reverse. This same idea is also found in the frequently cited verse in Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, verse 38. Whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. Does this mean that God's servants will reveal only what God has revealed to them? Well, that's one interpretation. It's the one that's generally understood in the LDS Church. Or does it mean that whatever God's servants say is the same as God's will? simply because they say it. You can see how problematic this type of thing can become. And it appears that Joseph Smith was engaged in just this sort of understanding. What Joseph thinks is what God thinks. What Joseph wants is what God wants. What Joseph believes is what God believes. And this type of thing applies probably not only to Joseph Smith, but even to the current president of the church, President Russell M. Nelson. We know that way back in 1993, he expressed his personal pet peeve about not calling the LDS church the Mormon church. So we know that this was his personal idea at that time, even though in the very next general conference, he was called out on that and basically chided by Gordon B. Hinckley, who expressed the opposite opinion. But nevertheless, President Nelson continued to nurse this pet peeve of his until he became president of the church. And lo and behold, when Russell M. Nelson became president of the church, suddenly this idea and concept and belief of his gets put into the mouth of God. And now this is what God is telling the members of the church. Don't call the LDS church the Mormon church anymore. Is this another example of what Joseph Smith did? when putting into the mouth of God his own beliefs that he had arrived at independently, that all the churches were in a state of apostasy. Is that what President Nelson is now doing, putting his own personal beliefs, which he's established and is on record as believing, back in 1993, into the mouth of God now as direct revelation? So in closing out this episode, I want to summarize as follows. First, the idea of translation within Mormonism, and specifically as applied to Joseph Smith, has been radically changed in the last few decades among Mormon scholars. The church has taught from its inception and continues to teach today through its leadership that Joseph Smith had a direct pipeline to God and that God communicated his will directly to Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith then wrote it down or dictated it as revelations from God. That Joseph Smith actually translated the Book of Mormon from gold plates. That Joseph Smith actually translated the Book of Abraham from the papyri that came into his possession in Kirtland in 1835. But now all of that is being turned on its head by the scholars in the community of Mormonism who are more and more finding out, understanding, and trying to reconcile the fact that all these ideas that were contemporary in Joseph Smith's society are what appear to be the distinctive doctrines that he then instantiated into his revelations, into his teachings, and into his translations. So much so is this the case that Terrell Givens, perhaps one of the preeminent scholars in Mormonism, has now floated the theory of bricolage, that Joseph Smith was in fact taking these ideas and putting them together and then casting those ideas from others into his revelations and translations. This is a far cry from what the church taught me when I joined the church and what the church continues to teach over the pulpit in general conference. And yet it is where the evidence is ineluctably leading scholars such as Terrell Givens. This theory of bricolage ends up being indistinguishable 
from a fraud on the part of Joseph Smith. It is what we would expect to see if Joseph Smith were a fraud. But Terrell Givens wants to say that because the fraud is so beautiful and moving to him personally, that it must be inspired in some way by God. But as I observed earlier, a beautiful fraud is no less a fraud simply because of its beauty. The fact that Mark Hoffman was able to create some beautiful forgeries does not somehow make those forgeries any more true or divinely inspired. And as this evidence becomes more well-known among the general membership of the church through publications such as Terrell Givens' new book, The Pearl of Greatest Price, more and more members will have to deal with the fact that Joseph Smith appears to have been dependent upon the ideas of others in his society for his revelations and for his translations. And as that knowledge continues to grow among the Latter-day Saints, I expect that the number of defections from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will continue to grow apace. Terrell Givens' theory is not, to my mind, some wonderful panacea that will help cure the ills of the doubting members of the church. Instead, it is the last stop on the train to leaving the church. A couple of other points should probably be made here before I close. First of these is that Terrell Givens has created a Joseph Smith very much in his own image. In other words, Terrell Givens is an erudite scholar, well familiar with the sources, and completely capable of taking a number of ideas from different sources and combining them into one place. Indeed, that is what he has done with his book, The Pearl of Greatest Price, as well as all the other books he has written prior to this. And so he envisions Joseph Smith as doing something quite similar, being well acquainted with all the various sources and assembling them into his revelations and translations. Now, Terrell Givens certainly provides evidence to show that his view of Joseph Smith is at least largely correct. But I have to observe that Terrell Givens has given us a Joseph Smith that is anything but the kind of Joseph Smith that is commonly talked about in church. The Joseph Smith talked about in church most commonly is a very uneducated young man with only the equivalent of a third grade education who was unacquainted with men and things. And that is the miracle as to how this young man with so little education and so little formal knowledge and training nevertheless produced the Book of Mormon and his other translations and revelations. In fact, Elder Tad Collister presented just that kind of ignorant Joseph Smith to the membership of the church in a general conference address titled God's Compelling Witness, The Book of Mormon. And in that general conference address, he not only presents Joseph Smith as ignorant and uneducated, but he labels those who claim that he was intelligent and sophisticated, not just as those with an alternative point of view, such as Terrell Givens, but he actually calls them critics of the church. Play the tape. First, the critics must explain how Joseph Smith, a 23-year-old farm boy with limited education, created a book with hundreds of unique names and places as well as detailed stories and events. Accordingly, many critics proposed that he was a creative genius who relied upon numerous books and other local resources to create the historical content of the Book of Mormon. Now, what Tad Collister is specifically referencing is Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon, which happened early on in his career. But the Book of Mormon was published in April of 1830, and the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible commenced later that same year of 1830. And it is clear from Terrell Givens' analysis that Joseph Smith did, in fact, rely on numerous sources in coming up with a Joseph Smith translation. 
The point I'm making here is that there are two Joseph Smiths coexisting side by side within contemporary Mormon literature and teaching. The one is the ignorant Joseph Smith with only the equivalent of a third grade education, the frontier farm boy who really didn't know much of anything before he created the Book of Mormon. And that is the miracle of it. That is the evidence that God must have been involved. Otherwise, how could Joseph Smith have done this on his own? And on the other hand, there is the very intelligent Joseph Smith, who was indeed familiar with numerous sources and incorporated those sources not only into the Book of Mormon, but also into the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible and his other revelatory works. And that is the miracle of it. And that is what shows that God must have been involved. The interesting thing to me is that a general authority of the church, Tad Collister, labels the approach of Terrell Givens as something that belongs to the critics and indirectly calls Terrell Givens a critic of the church. This underscores why it is that I titled my previous podcast about Terrell Givens' book as the amazingly subversive Terrell Givens. This is not how I personally viewed Terrell Givens, but it is certainly how the current LDS leadership appears to view Terrell Givens, or at least those who espouse the views that Terrell Givens espouses. Finally, let me return for a moment to Terrell Givens' use of the term bricolage to describe Joseph Smith's translations and revelations. Bricolage, as you will recall, is a fancy word that means taking things from a number of sources and then bringing them together and creating something new. Well, while I was recording this podcast, it occurred to me that that's exactly what I have been doing in creating this episode. I have taken ideas and concepts from numerous sources and brought them together and put them in one place. I began the episode, as I always do, with a bit of martial music. I start with my normal intro, testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three, and then I continued and presented an accumulation of sources, ideas, and audio clips from a variety of sources and brought them all into one place, i.e. this podcast. And as I was doing so, as often happens when I am creating a podcast, some of those ideas rub together and what is produced is that most primal human intellectual creation, a new idea. And I come up with a new idea and I include that in the podcast as well. And that is something else that I think needs to be taken into account, which is that while I'm doing this, new ideas are created, which are included in the podcast. Not everything I include is borrowed from somewhere else, but there are some new things that are generated and included as well. And I think we can't overlook the fact that Joseph Smith probably did similar things as he's collecting sources, comparing them putting them together, this creative act of bricolage produces new ideas on his part as well, which he then also incorporates in additional revelations and translations. I think the record shows that happening. So we should not expect to see absolutely everything that Joseph Smith wrote down as having a source in another text that was contemporary to him, but new things could be expected to be included as well. And I think we see that also. And perhaps it goes without saying that even though I have also engaged in an act of bricolage in creating this podcast, that does not necessarily mean that I am a prophet or that God's inspiration was involved in any way. Well, that's about all for now. And so from the Bricolage Foundation for Religious Confabulation, tucked away in a secluded corner of the ivy-covered Cassius University, I want to close this episode where I began by asking the question, how do you solve a problem like translation? Well, in the words and the music of Rogers and Hammerstein, perhaps that question can best be answered with another question. How do you solve a problem like translation? How do you hold a moonbeam in your hand? Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.